welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Some DJs are suddenly everywhere. Eric Cloutier's rise has been a slower burn, but it's making the payoff all that much sweeter. He came up in Detroit in the 90s, catching the likes of Richie Houghton at the height of their powers. Looking to broaden his horizons, he landed in New York and soon became integral to the bunker, the city's long-running and highly respected techno showcase. As a resident, he played alongside some of electronic music's best acts, and his DJ bookings became a hot commodity worldwide. A newly minted Berliner as of earlier this year, Eric dropped by our offices to look back at the road that landed him here and discuss this latest stage. it's not like a an especially sensitive topic to begin with or something like that <laughs> but I wanted to ask about um, about labyrinth this year um, you were supposed to play on the final day the final day never happened uh, what was that like on the ground um, I mean we kind of all had a weird sense that something was gonna happen on the Sunday night uh, you know they, they made an announcement over the music, like after Peter Van Hoosen was done, they kind of took like a five minute break to alert people that there's a typhoon coming and it's probably in your best interest to maybe evacuate the area. Like if you want to stay, you can stay, but they they were putting people kind of in the town hall and stuff like that. So all of us artists were being as optimistic as we possibly could. You know, we're like, no, no, it's cool. Everything will be fine. They're just overreacting. It's Japan. They've had a lot of bad things happen. So maybe they're just overly cautious. But then we went to bed and woke up the next morning and pretty much the building was shaking from the wind. And once that happened, I was, cause I was up really early cause I went to, I was going down to the festival to like go through a couple tracks before I started playing. So I was up really early and uh, once I kind of felt the building shake and then took a look outside the window, I knew that we were not doing Labyrinth. Uh, but I got all optimistic and I went downstairs all ready to go. Not with, I didn't bring my record bag downstairs. I wasn't that overzealous, but I went downstairs and kind of, you know, did the survey of the scene and had some breakfast and was just like, you know, this is, it's better that we're all inside and we're all safe. This is not happening today. And it's, it sucks guaranteed. But I think the main thing was is that we got two really good days in and you know, you lose one, one in 13 years. I think, you know, it's not a bad ratio and it's lucky number 13 for, for Labyrinth. So it's not a big deal. I'm glad everybody's safe. Uh, we still had a great time and I got to be surrounded by some of my favorite people and some of the best music on the planet. It's a win-win in my, my books, you know, act of God, you can't really get too, too mad about. So it's also a, not a super big festival. Um, so if something like this happens, you have to evacuate people. Uh, the logistics aren't nearly as complicated. Right. And, and, and again, this is Japan. They're the, some of the most efficient, thorough people on the planet. This was all thought of 
so far in advance, you know, the, in the preparation, because it is typhoon season when they're doing Labyrinth. So there's always that possibility. Just the fact that this is the first time it's ever caused any sort of shutdown of the festival is testament to the fact that they're prepared and they're ready and they know what could happen. They're also a little bit safe because they're way high up in the mountains. It's not nearly as bad as when we were driving down off the mountain the next day and you could see some of the flood damage and some of the wind damage. I'm glad the festival wasn't there. You know, like it could have been a lot worse. So it was kind of, you know, you know, it, it was tragic, but it ended in the most positive way. Zero injuries, no equipment was damaged. You know, you, you can't really ask for any better outcome in a situation like that. So it is what it is. You know? Was there was there any sort of replacement gig or a makeup gig or something like that? So that was what was hilarious is, you know, there was a couple of my friends that were traveling the first time and stuff like that. And I don't know how or why, but they were getting all these like, messages on Facebook and random emails and stuff. And they're like, I hear that everything's being moved to unit in Tokyo and all this stuff. And it's just like, wherever you're getting your information, you need to knock it off and stop telling people that like there's a, a makeup gig or we're all getting on a bus and going to the other side. It's not happening. You know, like it's over. Just be content with that and do what we were doing. We pretty much just kind of hung out in the hotel, had some beers and food and laughed and enjoyed the company that we had. It's like, you know, what a, it's what you do during a hurricane. You know, it's like you just kind of close up the windows and, and doors and just chill out, play board games. <laughs> it's like that's that's all you can do. Exactly. Um, but yeah, just the fact that people were like so high hopes that like it's going to keep going. I, I thought that was kind of great. But, the, you know, the disinformation didn't help <laughs> the situation, especially with people that are traveling from overseas that don't know that this is <laughs> it's game over for the weekend. So <laughs> sure. This year was your second uh, time playing the festival. Um, how, how did you first get involved with Labyrinth? Um, you know, I was uh, involved with the Minimal Sausage message board, which, you know, backing up, Minimal Sausage, uh, they were kind of the ones that really brought Labyrinth to the forefront. You know, Labyrinth had already been happening for, I believe, eight years at that point. And then they made the post with the very infamous... I think it's like a five or six hour Donato Dazi set that was one of the, the podcasts on Minimal Sausages. And that really kind of spearheaded the involvement with that. And I immediately became interested in Labyrinth because it was precisely kind of the music that I'm into. And, and when it's playing, and then I had made a couple podcasts for Minimal Sausages and Chris that runs Sausages uh, had forwarded a couple of my other recordings to Russ that books Labyrinth. And Russ was basically like, I don't know who this guy is, but I've got a strong enough confidence in him as a, a DJ that I think the world needs to hear more of this person. And he brought me on. He invited me hilariously via a, a direct message on Twitter. Wow. Because that was the only way he knew how to get in touch with me. <laughs> uh, so he sent me a message that basically said, how would you like to come to Japan? And... And from then, it was just like, at first, I had to reread the message about 12 times just to make sure that I wasn't completely crazy. But uh, yeah, that was like the uh, the kickoff was basically just happenstance. You know, he had heard a couple of my podcasts and thought highly enough of me to bring me out to Labyrinth. So it was a pretty big honor <laughs> at, at that time. Yeah, so. I'll say. It's pretty incredible, too. Y you know, these days... Um, <laughs> promoters seem to want somebody to have X number of singles out 
um, X number of mixes out in this certain place. You have to be a resident at this club, a resident at that club. I mean, you you have quite a resume, but it doesn't seem like a lot of promoters would would be willing to just fly somebody from America to Japan to play a festival. Well, and the hilarious fact about all of this is I never even had a passport at really? this point. And I literally got the invite to go to Labyrinth and had to f- quickly figure out how to expedite a passport. The very first stamp in my passport was Labyrinth. So that was your first time out of the country? Uh, well, I mean, I had been to like Mexico and Canada because at this point in time, I think it was just announced that you had to have a passport to cross into Canada or Mexico. You know, being in the States, you could go to those two countries. And I had played gigs in both of them. So I had been outside of the United States, but I had never gone overseas or anything like that. So my first overseas gig, my first stamp in my passport, like I said, was Labyrinth. And that that still, to me, kind of boggles my mind. But at the same time, uh, it's a pretty sweet introduction to the rest of the world. You know, it's, it's a good foot in the door. You said before, uh, you know, that, that you were really interested in Labyrinth because you felt like it was a great fix, for, uh, a great fit for your music, that Russ, who runs Labyrinth, kind of felt it was the same. Um, maybe this is a good time for you then to sort of describe uh, how you see yourself as a DJ. I mean, what is that, what is that thing that makes it a good fit? Uh, there's something about Labyrinth that... <sighs> I mean, besides the fact that it's definitely a weirder, deeper, headier, dare I use the word, trancier side of techno that a lot of people in this day would probably, they would love to deny that they enjoy it because it's got so many taboo buzzwords involved that it makes them feel like they're not cool. And by trancy, I mean, are you talking about the sound of the music, the vibe of the festival? Well, the vibe of the festival for sure, because when Labyrinth first started, it was a Psytrance festival. And there is still a very hippie vibe with lots of, you know, uh, homemade clothes and very uh, neon everything. It's got a very hippie, kind of Burning Man-ish vibe to it. Um, So it's more earth oriented you know it's rooted in a different way um but it's also kind of the sound i mean it's it's a place to get completely lost it's it's everything's very hypnotic the sound system is so insanely good that it it really brings music to a different level i've heard tracks that i've heard at labyrinth in clubs and it's kind of lost. It kind of falls a little flat, but then I hear it at Labyrinth and the way that it's dynamic and the panning and the space, it's just, everything kind of feels better there and sounds better there. So it's kind of, I mean, yeah, I say trancy and I don't mean it in a dumb (laughs) Tiesto sort of way. I mean it in like, it's, it's a very ethereal, spooky kind of thing, you know? Yeah, sure. And this is a this is like a thread that you see running through your own music, your own selections. It's that's kind of the way I try to go. I'm really into that head and body connection. You know, when I play, I don't I don't like big long breakdowns and cheesy sound effects and stuff like that. I try to keep the groove going so that it's basically you don't even realize that you've been dancing for 2 or 3 hours. And then I'll I'll throw like a little breakdown in there because and then people kind of look at their watch and they're like wow, I need a break. I, <laughs> I need to drink some water because I've been going for that long. And that's, again, that's kind of part of Labyrinth. It's it's geared. All the days are set up in such a way that everything kind of runs right into each other in this perfect story. And yeah, you don't realize that you've not eaten a meal and you're just out there rocking out to insanely good music for 12 hours. You know, it's 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 a beautiful place. 
So I love it. <laughs> where, where did you first encounter DJing like that? Um, I mean, a lot of the Richie parties, when Richie would do his proper parties in Detroit, where he would play for 10, 12 hours, well, especially when he was doing the Dex Effects of 909 tour, that would, it just blew my mind because it was just like, it was like a relentless, not punishing like in your face, but it was just constantly groovy and working you out. And you just couldn't pull yourself from the dance floor because you, you're, you want to take a break and then all of a sudden he throws something better on and it just like kept going and snowballing into this, this like whirlwind and all, you know, half your day's gone by and you're still out there and you're sweating and you, you, know, you can't feel your legs anymore. And this was in, this was in Detroit, This was in Detroit, yeah. which is where, which is where you're from for anybody who, who doesn't know. Correct. Um, yeah, I was blessed with growing up in Detroit in the nineties and two thousands with all of this. So I kind of had a perfect introduction. Um, but there was always so much good stuff going on in Detroit from Detroit locals with Dan Bell and Claude Young and, and, and Houghton, it was just like constant, you know, you always had a good weekend and you were constantly hearing new, interesting techno that just worked you out. It's, and, and again, I know people don't want to use the term, but a lot of the stuff that people would assume is trance these days, it was just techno in the nineties. Like it might be a little spacey and a little cheesy, but it just sounded damn good and nobody really cared, you know? So it was, it was a great introduction, like being, being in Detroit. So when did you take the leap into actually DJing? Um, I was fortunate enough that like one of the first parties I ever went to was a, a, a Richie Houghton party called Jack-O-Lantern. And yeah, I think I'm pretty sure that Richie did a plastic man live PA that night. And I was just, completely baffled by what the hell was going on. This table full of gear and blinking lights. And I was just like, what the, I need to figure out more about this. Cause it's one thing to play records, but when you see it actually happen yeah. live, it, it kind of changed my perspective. So shortly after that, I kind of started buying a lot of records here and there. Um, you know, I was going over to a friend's house that had turntables. I pretty much just like had all my records. Whenever I bought them, I had them like mailed to his place or whatever I picked up in town, I just brought over to his place and left him there and practiced uh, DJing over there. And that just parlayed into you know, house parties. And then the house parties turned into like, so-and-so's throwing an after party, play the after party, then that turns, you know, it just kind of worked its way up the, the food chain slowly. But I didn't really get into like the scene in Detroit until maybe 2001 or 2002. Um, when I started getting really heavily involved with, um, uh, you know, I was a moderator for this semi-notorious message board back in Detroit called Detroit Love. And uh, we started throwing parties, you know, just to, because there were so many DJs on the message board that they all deserved a chance. So I started playing those more and more, and that just kind of worked my way up. Um, but it started off as just like house party, you know, somebody heard me and, okay, you should come you should come play this party in like the chill out room or something like that. Because I was really, really big into dub techno and like slow-mo kind of chill out stuff. So it's, it's been like a weird lineage uh, direction for everything. So, sure. Yeah. You always sort of hear about these different generations, these different waves of people coming through Detroit. Um, do you feel like you sort of fall into this lineage? I mean, where, where do you sort of place yourself in the, 
and kind of the history of Detroit techno? I hate when people ask these kind of questions <laughs> because it's one of those things where my opinion is going to clash with somebody that's like cousins or brothers with Blake Baxter and they're going to get all pissed or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's one of those things where like growing up in Detroit is it's, it's such an honor and to be part of that scene you almost don't feel like you're official until something monumental happens. But it's got to be monumental in like Detroit terms. And, you know, I've been invited to Labyrinth twice. And I can tell you that pretty much nobody from Detroit, like the, the Bellevue 3, those guys will never ever play Labyrinth. So my version is like, yeah, I've made it. And theirs is like, show me the records that you made on Tresor. And it's just, it's not a fair... It's just a, they have such a weird competition and it's their own internal rules that you never really understand. I don't know. And to answer the short answer is I don't know because it's such a hard knock city where nobody really understands anybody's place anymore, especially because Detroit has really dwindled itself down to such a finite amount of musicians because so many have left that. I think the way that you would make it in Detroit is if you're still in Detroit. Yeah, that's the way it works. I think that's just their their tough love. Yeah. So if I were to ever move back and things were great, then I've made it. But until I'm living in Berlin, still living in Berlin or go back to New York or whatever, they don't really care. <laughs> do you do you feel like there's a there's kind of a disconnect between um, the way uh, I don't know the uh, music journalists or uh, people in Europe or something would talk about Detroit and what's actually going on there. You know, we sort of talk about these these waves of people coming through Detroit, this lineage of Detroit, this, you know, but but it kind of sounds like growing up there, none of that really matters as much or it means something very, very different. I mean, I think it's no different than being blessed to have grown up in Berlin or Hamburg or Cologne or the UK, like at specific times, being there and growing up there and cutting your teeth there holds a lot of weight on a resume. I mean, it's still hilarious that there's so many places I go and the first thing that people say is like, oh, he's from Detroit. And and all of a sudden people are like, oh, okay, so maybe he's not terrible. You know, it's like they've kind of got this, oh, yeah, that's not so bad. Like they kind of put different rules on, on you, like when you're from those areas. But at the same time, they also put some weird heavy, like... uh respect and you know that you need to fill some crazy shoes like it's it's a hard thing it's a blessing and a curse <laughs> is what it really is it's like it's great to be from detroit but somewhere down the line somebody's gonna be like oh you're from detroit so you must be a total badass and it's just like well no but thank you <laughs> like thanks for assuming and maybe thinking that that's what is bred from that city but it's and all in all i think it's kind of pointless I don't think it really matters where you're from. You know, it's like if you're good at what you do and you make people happy, then I don't care if you're from bumfuck nowhere. <laughs> like, who cares? But you still feel like you you were blessed to come from there, that you definitely took something from Detroit that you wouldn't have gotten if you grew up somewhere else. Totally, totally. I mean, yeah, growing up in Detroit was, it was easy, especially between parties and record stores and just running into people all the time. You had a wealth of knowledge and so many musical opportunities that it was just like you kind of look at other places especially in the united states you look at other cities and you're like i got it easy like this is this is easy this is not so bad 
it'd be a lot different if I grew up in like Cincinnati, Ohio or something like that. Like that's, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit harder, but yeah, it's just, it's one of those things where it, it, it did a lot for me, you know, like I think there was an article I was talking to somebody else where I mentioned that like Detroit's where I learned to like survive, like that you learn a lot about DJing and you learn about a lot about the business and you learn a lot about how to play games and how to play favorites and what to say and who not to piss off. And, but it's also technically you learn a lot about what works and what doesn't. You get so many more opportunities to try things and practice you know, in front of a crowd that it, it parlays itself into being more comfortable when you take it to the next stage. So yeah, it was a good, good opportunity. You talk about being blessed in, in, in that way with regard to like the, the geography of, of where you, where you grew up and kind of what came with that. Um, I wonder if you were also sort of blessed by, um, having the internet sort of be part of your musical education as well. Um, you, you mentioned that you had sort of gotten involved with a message board. You mentioned minimal sausages being kind of the way that you got to Japan in a, in a certain sense. Do you think that sort of broadened your horizons um, more than maybe people of previous Detroit generations would have would have had you know would have been able to do? Well, it broadened them in like a much easier way. You know, like when you're doing this in the early '90s, your only option to learn about new music was to just go to the record store every day. Whereas I had the option of sitting online, coming home from school or from work or whatever, and I could go onto one website and click through 50 of the new releases. And it just, you know, it almost made you like an armchair quarterback. Like you could find out about the records before the people in the record store knew about them. So it gave you some weird advantage. So you learned to just embrace the fact that the internet is going to be your friend, especially in this game. You know, the, the sooner you can find out about a track and play it in front of people, that that makes you the leader in that category. So it was a constant race to like, who can buy it first and who can get it shipped quicker. And it's, yeah, it kind of turned into a fun game where, you know, you could identify tracks in other people's sets for yourself or for other people, but you could also find out about something because somebody else that knows more than you is going to be like, oh yeah, that's that track. And you instantly go online and buy it. And it's it, it made the game of DJing fun because it was like this constant one-upsmanship. Like every week you wanted to be like, here's my new toys. You know, it, it was it was fun. So it helped and it spurred creativity, I think, a lot. And it's, it turned me into a record-digging psychopath where I sit on Discogs like, six hours a day because I'm just <laughs> constantly looking for stuff. Yeah, there's this whole other place to dig through records, you know. On, the, the online record bin is infinite. You know, your record store only has so much. And going online and just, I mean, I've got my like feeds that I troll all day and like my certain like websites that I constantly go to like multiple times throughout the day because you never know when something's going to get posted. I'm, it's really bad. It's really <laughs> unhealthy, I'm sure. Um, but it's, it's part of what I think makes, it separates people in, in like the quality of music. You know, the, the deeper you dig, theoretically, the better your music's going to be when you play. So the internet fucking helps, man. <laughs> it really helps, but it's, it's a great tool. Uh, but yeah, you can also get, like, I'm guilty of spending too much time looking at records and not working on music. So... <laughs> 
six in one, half dozen the other, I guess. Sure, sure. Well, yeah, you always have been um, kind of a DJ first and foremost. You've dipped your toes now into doing some production. Um, yeah. Recently put out uh, your first record on vinyl, right? Correct. Was Was getting into production something that you always wanted to eventually do? Uh, I mean, I've been DJing now for like 16 years and I've, I've always had the desire to work on music. I think a lot of it was crippled by attention span and learning curve. I, I hit a point where I was like, okay, I think I've got this DJ thing down. And then I start working on music and it's like buttons and blinking things are hurting my brain. Fuck it. I'm just going to go play records. Because I, I understood the records and I understood what I wanted out of it. So I'm trying to like retrain myself to just push through it and, you know, kind of think about it how I, when I was learning to DJ, how much of a pain in the ass it was. But I still did it. Why can I do that? Or why did I do that? And I'm not paying that much attention to production. But a lot of it also came from, again, with going through and digging for records constantly. I was having a really, really hard time for a couple years where I would go through two or 300 records a day online and I couldn't find a damn thing that I liked. And that made me think, all right, if there's that much crap out there, then I need to just work on my own music because theoretically, if I make something, I'm going to like it and I'm going to want to play it. And theoretically, other people will as well because if it's filling a void that you know, is just being overtaken by cheesy crap, then it should work. In On paper, it should work. On paper, it should work. <laughs> so the other side of the coin, though, is that when you have so many years of DJing and kind of knowing what works and then so many years of um, so many years of collecting records, I would imagine that also makes you an insane perfectionist about this stuff. Oh, don't even get me started on that. I mean, that's again, this is another problem is that besides the learning curve is that I know exactly what I want in my head and I can't get it to work in the first hour and a half. So I just get pissed off and stop because I know exactly what sound I'm going for. I can hear it. I know what I want and it's not coming out because I don't have those skills yet. So it hinders me and it ends up being a lot of trial and error and a lot of just very, very slowly working on music. I mean, I, at this juncture, I would be really, really happy if I could put out two EPs a year, I'd be happy with one, but let's shoot the moon here and get two out. Uh, because I'd rather get quality over quantity. And I think that's a big thing that people need to get back to. Like, it's cool that you made 74 records this year, but 73 of them are shit. So who gives a crap? You know, you're only as good as your last record. And if the last 20 suck. Sorry, I'd rather be as good as my last one and have it come out a year ago. You know, like that's, I'd rather work at a slower pace and get the right thing out there. So it's, it's been a labor of love, but I'm getting there. Um, moving here was a, definitely a stepping stone because I'm surrounded by more inspiration, which really helps. But the fact that I'm not constantly stressing out about living in New York and how expensive it is, uh, it's giving me more time to focus on, on music. So... In theory, this next year should be great, especially this winter. Winter in Berlin, terrible. Yeah, nothing you, else. You to don't do. want to go out. Nothing else to do but sit inside and work on music. So that's kind of the plan: is summers for fun, winters for work. So 
Let's see what happens. Sounds like a good plan. Let's talk about your time in, in New York. Um, that was the place that you went after Detroit. What, what brought you to New York? I couldn't stand Detroit anymore. Um, you know, I was working for Toyota, uh, which was a great job. And I could probably still be there and I could retire from it when I'm 55. But what, what were you doing with Toyota? I worked at the design studio, uh, helping with clay modeling concept cars. Um, it was a great job. I absolutely love it. And I totally miss it. I'm not going to lie. It was one of the most fun jobs I've ever had. And it was such a rare job. It's not something you don't meet every, somebody every day that gets to do that kind of stuff. So it was super, super awesome. Um, but I was just over it. Detroit, not just, you know, like my career path didn't feel right. Um, but the bullshit politics of Detroit just got to me. You're talking about the politics of the music the music scene. scene, yeah. And I just couldn't take it really anymore. And I just I I had come to play the bunker, uh, and pretty much I was here or I was in uh, New York for I think like five days. It was my first time like really being able to explore New York, and uh, I just totally fell in love with it. And it was one of those things that was just like this is where I need to be right now. I feel the creative energy. This is musically probably going to be a lot better for me than Detroit will be. And uh, it just kind of felt right. So on a whim, I packed my shit up in my car and I would, I was living, I, I played bunker in early December. I think I moved to New York in like mid January. So like 45 days later, I was out the door. So it just felt right. I needed to do a change. I needed a change. Everybody needs a reboot once in a while, you know? So and absolutely. That, and that was it. So how did you meet Brian from the bunker? Derek Plesleko had already been living in New York for about a year, uh, and he was a huge influence on me uh, in Detroit. Kind of took me under his wing and mentored me and showed me a lot about music uh, and DJing. And um, he was already in New York for about a year and was fairly rapidly picked up by Bunker, uh, by Brian. Kind of, you know, he felt like this was the guy that needed to, to be the resident. Uh, so Derek was there already. And when I moved there, I had gone to a couple bunkers, primarily because Derek was there. And I knew, you know, so I knew at least one person in the room. And uh, it just, you know, by going there a few weeks in a row, I was like, this is kind of home. It felt like Detroit parties, you know, like it felt like the same kind of vibe. And musically, it was right up my alley, you know, because I had ping ponged around to other competitive parties in New York at the time. And they all just didn't, they weren't, they weren't one, the ones for me. Bunker really felt like it. Uh, so by hanging out all the time, that turned into, you know, hey, Brian, I'm done with work at five o'clock. Do you need help setting up the speakers and the, the, the DJ booth? Yeah, sure. Come by. We'll give you a drink ticket or whatever. And, and then that turned into, hey, do you want to play once or twice? And then that turned into, okay, you're, you're a resident now. So it, it, it kind of was a, I, I, I got it by being annoying, I think, is how I got into Bunker. Uh, persistence, I guess, you know, so it worked. <laughs> you were, you were able through the bunker to have the opportunity to open for all sorts of other DJs. Um, was there an opening set that ever completely stumped you? Uh, I don't know. You know, they were, they were all, Brian curates the bunker largely in the same way that Russ curates the labyrinth. There's a time and a place for everybody. So Brian, as much as I wanted to open up for so-and-so, 
he was just like, no, you're not ready yet. Or no, I've got a better vision for the night. And he put me in with something else. And nine times out of 10, it was like, yeah, I'm glad I waited. You know, so it, it never really felt like there was anyone that would do me wrong. But there were definitely a couple ones that I was really nervous about. I don't know why, but I guess that's a good thing. You know, it's good to still be nervous. It's not a job. You know, it's, it's, you treat it like something else. Mm-hmm. Being an opening DJ, I, I would imagine, is just an, a, a pretty incredible opportunity to sort of improve your game. Everybody says it's the, the, it's the hardest gig is to sort of be the opening guy. Now that you're probably playing more headlining gigs, I mean, do you still look back to that time? Like, like does that still feel like an education to you in a way? Absolutely. I think being an opening DJ is one of the best things that anybody can do uh, because there's so many people that are thrust into the position a little too early. I can't tell you how many parties I've been to where at 10 o'clock it's 133 beat per minute techno and it's just like, what the fuck, dude? I just walked in the door. Chill out, you know? (laughs) But it's the people that don't have, they think that they're the headliner already when it's like their third gig ever playing. You gotta, you gotta start somewhere. And I think starting at the bottom and having to learn how to properly warm up a room is really important, but more important, it's the versatility. I mean, I've opened up for such a wide range of people where it's like one day I need to wear my techno hat and the next I need to be the deep house guy, you know, having a wide selection goes a long, long way. But again, I think a lot of people just forget the fact that you're not going to shoot right to the top of, you know, the headlining spot on your first gig. You know, you need to ease into it. I think a lot of people are just too new to really understand. Like the whole the whole chill out room concept is completely lost. And that's basically what an opening DJ should be. Is like you're the guy that warms the room up. You don't overstep toes. You don't you don't really try to. You, the worst thing you can do is play the record of the guy who you're opening up for. You know, it's like let him do it. That's his thing. Don't don't do that first. You know, it's just nobody's learned those lessons anymore because. They watch too many people have these meteoric rises to the top for no reason. You ask any of these famous DJs out there if they could play an opening slot. I <laughs> bet you they can't do it. I bet you a lot of them can't do it. It's just... It would at least be a lot more challenging than they expected it to be. I think they would have a hard time. I think people would... They'd give it... People like to think that the opening DJ, the resident DJ, is an easy gig because you get to play once a week or whatever. You try playing once a week and and playing a different set every time without repeating a track and keeping it interesting while playing for such a wide variety of people and tell me if you can do it. It's not that easy. Yeah, the the it's it's really it forces you to hone to hone your craft in a way that bigger DJs these days never really had to do because so much of the game now seems <laughs> like it's kind of based on you put out a couple of big singles and then you start getting booked all over the world. Well, the other side of it is, is, again, this may go back to my being an internet nerd and hunting it for music all the time. That also allowed me to listen to such a wide range of artists that, you know, if somebody's really into the Berghain sound, they're probably going to focus on the Berghain sound. But if you tell them to open up for Theo Parrish, they're probably going to play Berghain-y stuff in front of Theo Parrish and it's going to screw everything up. Whereas I'm curious with who's popular and what's this and who's that. And I'll listen to their back catalog. And it's just like, I learn who, 
who the person is that I'm opening up for. And that's like, okay, yeah, I can do that. I've got to pull from the other side of my shelf and get the, you know, different style of music. It's, it's when people just think that they know it all without learning about their peers that you kind of lose the point. Sure. You know, is it hard to still kind of have a personality as a DJ when you're thrust into these gigs where you keep having to pull from those different sides of the shelf? Where, where does kind of your voice as a DJ come out? I think that's, that's probably the one crutch of all of it is that, you know, if you're a perpetually opening, nobody believes that you can go further to the headlining spot. So it takes some sort of luck in a way to get that headlining spot and prove people wrong because you will, you you pigeonhole yourself. I'm totally guilty of it that I've had opportunities where it's like, I should be playing after that guy because it would fit more, but they put me on opening because they're just under the assumption that that's all I'm good at. And it kind of sucks. You know, it's like, there's more, there's more to me than just playing the early spot or the ad, like the late, late after hours thing. It's like, put me right in the middle, see what happens. You know, you, maybe you, I do have those records. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a curse as much as it is a blessing. And again, you get to play all the time, but you only play one time slot forever. You know, so it's, it's a little rough, but I still enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I still, still love playing first. I don't know what it is. And, and you're still a resident at the bunker, even though you've moved. I'm still a resident. Yeah. I'm still considered a resident. I'm kind of carrying the torch on this side of the pond now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also got my residency with John Osborne at uh, Tresor uh, for our Tonstoffel label nights. Um, so I've, I've kind of got a new residency here, and I enjoy that because that allows me to play all different hours of the night. Um, but I still, I want to try and find a place that I can do. I used to have a resident or a monthly in New York that was just me pretty much all night. This was Den of Thieves, right? Well, there was Den of Thieves, but I had a, mus- a monthly called Down. That was, the rules were that you couldn't go faster than 120 beats per minute. And it was meant to be after work drink time music. The volume wasn't really loud. It was kind of someplace you came between like six and midnight and had at- drinks with your friends after work on a Wednesday. And you just heard good music. Maybe it piqued your interest enough that you stop your conversation. But for the most part, it was cocktail music. Not in the nerdy sense. It was still techno and, and house. But it was, it was deeper and chill. Because I know in talking with so many DJs that they have that awesome collection of deep and weird and funky stuff that they never, ever get to play that they wish they could. So I would invite people to do that. Dust off the ones that you've been waiting to play for years. I want to try all those B2s. You know? Yeah, you never know. Somebody's it's something's hidden on one of those records that you've never heard of. And you it it needs to be heard at least once. Yeah. You know? So I want to try and find some place to do that here in Berlin and kind of keep that that kind of theory alive with play your B sides. Also, the after work drinks time. I, I think maybe people who are not from New York or haven't spent a lot of time in New York might not understand that this is like a, a kind of major uh, time for socializing in the lives of a New Yorker or in the lives of New Yorkers. Yeah. And uh, the music is sort of not always the, the the focus or not always even something that gets much attention at, the, at this kind of happy hour gig. Right. It, usually it's just some crappy podcast or somebody puts on Pandora. And that's what you, that's all you listen to. 
and it's cheesy and nobody likes it and you drink your drink as fast as you can and you can get the hell out of there i was kind of encouraging like stay and mingle and hang out and like and a lot of times like most of my monthly parties people would come at six o'clock and i was supposed to end at midnight and it ended up being at two because people were just having fun it's like it's something to do on a wednesday that you didn't expect would be enjoyable like, and their bosses must have loved you oh they hated me <laughs> my boss hated me because i would come into work on thursday not looking so good but i had a great time out and i again i got to play a bunch of music that i never get to play and that made me happy you know it was like it was more fun for me to play the crap that i never get to play before we talk about your life here in berlin um I wanted to ask you kind of about being a local DJ in New York City. You sort of alluded before to what a hustle it was there. Um, what is it like being a DJ based out of New York who's mostly playing in New York? It's hard. There's a million of them. Um, the pay isn't very good. Uh, you know, you end up having to play a lot of gigs that you might not want to play. But at the same time, it's New York. And you're playing all the time. And that's not really a bad situation there. You know, it's such a popular scene and it's just growing more and more that DJing in New York all the time is, it's kind of like DJing in Detroit all the time or DJing in Berlin. Like that's a cool, cool ass experience. Not many people can say that they get to do that. And uh, yeah, it was, it was good, but it's just a hustle. Everything in New York is a hustle. Even going to get groceries is a hustle. It's I don't understand why it's so com competitive all the time, which is part of the reason I got out of there. I just, I'd wore myself out, you know, constantly worrying about money and constantly worrying about where the next gig was. It was just like, I can't take this anymore. My brain needs a rest. Was it a, was it a pretty fraught decision to come over here to, to Berlin to sort of start a new life here? I think the hardest part of coming over here to start a new life was convincing my now fiance that <laughs> we're moving to Berlin. Uh, she too was ready to move. I'm not going to speak for her, uh, but she too was ready to move. Um, but I think it was also a necessary evil. I had, I had reached a point in my musical career where I, I kind of felt like I was plateauing if I stayed in New York and it would be more beneficial for me to come as they say, where the scene is or where the party is and come to Berlin because that's, it's, it was going to afford me inspiration. And like I mentioned earlier, it's more opportunity to focus on music than constantly worrying about how I'm going to pay my bills. So it just felt like the next logical step. Um, when, when did you actually move over here? I moved in March of this year. March, uh, March, 2013. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty recent, um, but uh, it doesn't feel like it's that recent. I've been coming back and forth so many times over the last four years that, you know, I already knew my way around and where to get the best falafel and everything was fine. So it, it didn't feel like that much of a transition, uh, especially because last year I had done the math and I had spent about seven months traveling out of the whole year and only five months in New York. So the scale was now tipped in the other direction where it's like, you're spending more of your time in Europe. Why don't you just stay in Europe? And that just made the most sense to me. Um, so I decided to screw it, pack up my shit and 
put my records in a box and let's go. Let's uh, try it out. So, so far, so good. So um, it's been a positive experience so far. You, you feel like you kind of found what you were looking for. Well, the thing was, is that like, I was constantly getting these booking requests like, hey, we want to book you for Rome. Well, sorry, I'm in New York, but I'll be there in two months. Well, two months doesn't work for us. So it was just like there were opportunities that were coming that I had to turn down because I wasn't available because nobody wanted to spend the 1200 euro or whatever it is for a flight from New York. I mean, I would get paid nothing. So I had to kind of clump things together. Now that I'm here and I can get those requests and say, yes, by all means, I will take an easy jet flight to wherever you want me to like, that's fine. So it's, it's benefited me in that capacity greatly. I'm getting a lot more gigs just by people knowing that I'm in the area. But again, just the fact that I can spend more time focusing on music is it's going to push myself into the next bracket because I'll finally have more tracks coming out. I'll be more confident in everything and I'm in the right place, you know, so. Mm -hmm. are, are you finding, are you finding Berlin to also be um, as inspirational as a, as a place as you were maybe hoping it would be? There's pockets. I mean, nothing's perfect, you know. Uh, there's been plenty of times where I've gone to, you know, Berghain or Panorama Bar or Kotterholzig or something like that, or Club Division Air, and I have these, like, freak-out moments where I'm like, this is brilliant. I don't want it to end. And I go home with a, a million ideas, and I sit in front of my computer for hours on end because it's like it was that kind of creative slap in the face that I really needed. But like everything, there's times where I go out and I'm completely bored to tears and I want to punch myself in the face and just go home. Um, yeah, it's, it's not perfect. It's not the Berlin of 2004, like everybody you know, wishes it was, but whatever, it's still there and it's still got great spots. And I think it's now more than ever, it's pushing people to dig a little bit deeper you know, it's not just going to hit you obviously in the face all the time. So you got to look for those little hole in the wall parties that could have some amazing music at it. So it's a lot of networking and taking chances. This is a great place to be if you're an artist. Um, but I, I think that you would probably agree that you're also just a massive fan. Are, are you as sated by this place uh, as a fan as you are as an artist? Oh, totally. I mean... Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's only so many things that you can go to in New York that will end up piquing your interest. And they're few and far between. Um, but when I moved out here, it's just like every day of the week, there's probably something I want to go to. With, without fail, there's probably something seven days a week. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's very few times where I go home feeling dissatisfied. Uh I think everything's a pretty good experience because the party culture as a whole is a little bit more mature. So it's not, you know, candy bracelets and fairy wings and furry boots like it is in the United States right now. They've moved on. And that makes it much more comfortable and enjoyable because you're not being bothered by the tricks rabbit, like trying to sell you shitty pills. You know, it's like, this is way cooler because it feels more mature. Um, but at the same time, it's, there's almost too much going on to really properly enjoy it. So you feel like you might've missed something. 
but it's a big city and big city problems, I guess. You yeah. know, it's like, How's it going with the production now? Are, are you feeling like you're hitting a bit of a stride? Do you have a lot of stuff in the pipeline? I wish I had a lot of stuff in the pipeline. I've got a lot of unfinished things because, you know, you can only listen to the track so many times before you're like, I don't even know what's wrong with it. So I walk away for a couple of weeks. Um, but I also haven't found my like rhythm and comfort zone, especially because, you know, I just recently moved to a new apartment. So I'm having to like rebuild everything from scratch and that slowed me down. Uh, but, you know, again, with the learning curve, I don't, I don't have that ability to just sit down and push some buttons and have magic happen. I sit down and a lot of crap comes out and then I finally get somewhere and it's, it's already dinner time. So just as soon as I get kind of going, it's like, oh crap, I gotta, it's bedtime. I gotta go to bed now. You know, so it's, it's not a steady, consistent workflow, uh, but that will only come with practice and time and I need to keep telling myself to just sit there and push through the pain and the tears and make something happen because that's usually when I am the most successful is when I just don't give up uh but you know with traveling and moving and stuff like that it's been a slow slow process for me so I'm hoping that it's going to pick up in the next months it needs to because I've got a lot of crap I need to finish. All the people out there that know that I'm, I owe you a track, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> It'll happen. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a labor of love right now, but I still love it. Yeah. So, As a DJ, so you've now been, you've been at it for, you said, 16 years. Are you continuing to find new challenges in DJing, like sort of these new heights, these new plateaus, these new things to, to strive for as a DJ? Um. Yeah, of course. Uh, mainly, I've been trying to push myself a little bit more technically. Um, there was a period right when I moved to New York, because I lived in New York and was broke, that uh, I, I started using Tractor to DJ with because it was it was cheaper for me to go on Beatport or Juno Download and buy 20 tracks for $20 than it was for me to buy two records. You know, it made more sense logistically to get the most for my money. So I capitalized on that and was DJing with Tractor, leaving behind my vinyl only roots. Now that I've been traveling more and have been finding a lot more vinyl that I appreciate and I don't think is garbage, uh, I realized that Tractor was driving me completely insane and really hindered my ability to play a good set because I was spending more time scrolling through 3,000 tracks rather than sitting there with a crate of 60 and knowing if this doesn't work and the crowd turns on me, I don't have 2,999 more options. I've got a very finite selection. So it, it made me appreciate DJing more. So I went back to playing vinyl and then I finally taught myself how to use CDJs after years of resistance. Um, so I've kind of worked myself back up to playing like a four deck, two vinyl, two CDJ thing. And, uh, I feel I'm enjoying DJing so much more. I'm having way, way more fun playing than I ever have, I think, because it feels more legitimate to me. I'm not covering up mistakes with loop buttons and crappy effects. I'm, if I screw up, it's because I screwed up. 
and I'm okay with that. I'm comfortable with not being a perfectionist. Um, so I'm loving playing a lot more, and that's coming out in my sets. I think it's a little bit more obvious when I play. But I'm gonna try, I wanna try and do some other things. I'm thinking about throwing another third turntable in there and getting crazy and who knows. But yeah, I'm just, I'm enjoying pushing myself now. I don't see why I should just stop. I've got this down. I know how to beat match. I know how to mix. You know, it's like, why not give yourself something else? So I'm playing around. Mm -hmm. 